Good morning, everyone. Shalom Aleichem. Gemar Chasima Taiva. We are here live with First Seder Bismedrish. And I wish all of our listeners and participants, Be'ez HaShem, Agutke Ben Shiar, Gemar Chasima Taiva. And of course, a welcome to our Torah Anytime viewers and listeners as well. And a Gemar Chasima Taiva to them too. Today we're going to talk about, we're continuing our series, weekly series, The Life and Torah of Our Leaders. And today we're going to talk about the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. The Baal Shem of Michelstadt was a very famous um, tzaddik of German Jewry. And um, as we will see, he was a very, very fascinating personality. I was last year, just over a year ago, almost the, uh, in the summer, to be in Michelstadt at his kever. So today, Dalit Tishrei is his, is his yard site. So, his name was Reb Yitzchak Aryeh Wurmser. Yitzchak Aryeh is um, the German slash Yiddish nickname would be Zekel, Sekel or Zekel, in Yiddish it's Zekel Leib. Like Yitzchak is Zekel, is like Isaacal, Zekel becomes, uh, Yitzchak becomes Zekel and Aryeh becomes Leib. So his name was Zekel Leib Wurmser because he was, his family found itself, its uh, grandfather, great-grandfather were, was from Worms. So they were called Wormsers. They were the ones from Worms. That's how the family got the name Wormser. So his father was named Dramatis Yohu. And he was a, a textile merchant. His wife's name was Sarla. And um, they had 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 before him six sons who had unfortunately passed away in childhood. And um, in the year 1768, Tav Kuf Chav of Simchas Teira, so the beginning of the year of Tav Kuf Chav so I guess it's really 1767, if it's uh, after Rosh Hashanah of Tav Kuf Chav in the shul of Michelstadt, they used to sell, like I'm sure many shuls do, the kibudim and the mitzvahs for the entire year. And one of the kibudim in those times was called chipus. Chipus is, literally means to search. But basically there was someone who would buy the schus to make sure that the Sefer Torah was always in the right spot for Kriyas HaTorah. So every Arab Shabbos, or if it was a Rish Chaydesh, or it was a Yantif, his job would be to make sure that the Sefer Torah was in the right spot. Now you have the Gabbai who does it, but in those days they actually sold that schus. And this Ramatisio wanted that schus that year. And uh, he was bidding, and he bid a tremendous amount of money. He wasn't necessarily from the richest people in Michelstadt, but uh, I guess he had some money at that point, as we'll see, he didn't have a lot of money throughout the years. And um, so he was bidding, but he, as far as he got, some wealthy fellow outbid him, and uh, that person won the right for Chippus. Ramatisio was very pained by it. However, he w- did not let it affect his Simchas Yontif and Simchas Taira, such a joyous, times, joyous time. And he had a Suda, Yontif Suda, and at his table there were a lot of Aniyim there. A lot of poor people would come and eat there. And after one of them finished eating, he, um, he turned to say Yontif and thanked them for the meal. 
And he said, Is there anything that I could give you a bracha for? So they answered him, Ramatisio and his wife answered him, they want a ben shel kayama, they want a son that is going to live. Unfortunately, like we said, they had six sons who had already passed away. So he gave them a bracha that that year they would have a son, and the son would grow up to be a Galdab Yisrael. And then they asked him, what's your name? Who are you? So he said, I na- answer to the name Eliyahu. And he left. So there's a, um, at the kever of the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, there's like a little sign there. And um, it has on it a little bit of the, of the yichos of the Baal Shem. But it says, starts off and it says, Neilad, he was born. And it writes in parentheses, Lefi ha-mesoyres al-pigilu According to, to, to tradition, he was born through a bracha from Elio Anavi, Gilu Elio. And that was this person who said that he answers to the name Elio. Um, the Baal Shem was Rabbi Zekalev, Rabbi Zekarya was the fifth dar. He was a fifth generation, so his great-great-great-grandfather was Rabbi Liol Baal Shem from Vermeiza. Rabbi Liol Baal Shem, you have to understand the word Baal Shem is a title. The title Baal Shem means to be like a wonder worker. Um, that's why you have the Baal Shem Toiv. He also was called the Baal Shem Toiv. You had other people who had names of Baal Shem. It literally means one of a name, that he has a name to be able to do something. So the, um, so the, um, his, his, his fifth, fifth gra- grandfather back was Rabbi Liol Baal Shem of Worms, who was a famous Makubal, lived, I think, in the 1500s. He is buried in the old cemetery of Worms by the Rabbanim there. We were at his kever as well that same, that same year we were in Germany. Um, this Rabbi Liol Baal Shem is a grandson of another famous personality, and his name was Rabbi Yezelman from Rosheim. And he was a big uh, Askin in Germany. You might know him because Marcus Lehman wrote a book uh, about him, Jocelyn from Rosheim. And um, so this Rebbe Leol Bashem was a grandson of his. So that was another famous personality that they were related to. And it writes, it says on that sign that it goes all the way back to, their Yichus goes back to Rashi, Rashi HaKadosh. So this is the Yichus of this um, Rebbe Yitzchak he was born later that year, like Elio said, in Tov Kuf Chav Ches, 1768, in Um He spent his youth in Michelstadt. Michelstadt was a very small city. Um, his father wanted him to be a businessman. I'm not sure what to say about the fact that Elio Anavi told him that he's going to be a god to be Yisrael, but his father wanted him to be a businessman, probably because Parnassa, he was not a very wealthy fellow, and probably he needed help with his Parnassa. However, the, uh, this child is a young age, was already known as a very smart and, uh, and, and astute child. Even the Gayim, the, there's a story with the Duke of the uh, neighborhood who heard about him and gave him a test to see how brilliant he was. Um, his father used to sell, send him um, numerous times to, a, to the city nearby called Orbach. It was a city nearby to Michelstadt to uh, do some business there and maybe even learn the business. And uh, he just invariably made his way to the Bismedrish and he would end up learning there. Um, when he was 13 years old, he wanted to go learn in yeshiva. He, I guess he was learning with the Malamdim in Michelstadt and uh, his parents didn't want him to go. Like we said before, his father wanted to be a businessman. At the end, they finally agreed to send him to the city called Merzig. Merzig is about uh, two and a half hours um, west by car of Michelstadt, so it's a pretty 
a far distance to learn with the Rav there. I'm not sure who the Rav was. Wasn't uh, necessarily such a famous personality, but his parents agreed to that. But he was on his way. He was on the road and he got sick and he had to come back home. He ended up in bed for a few months, um, sick. And eventually, um, and while he was there, he was learning Basma the Rabba. No one could send him anywhere. Um, he would learn days and nights over there, even though he was sick. By the age of 16, in 1783, um, um, he, um, he finally was uh, successful in, letting his, in, in his parents letting him go learn in Frankfurt. Frankfurt's not very far from Michelstadt. Um, nowadays, about an hour drive from Frankfurt. So you figure out how far it is, uh, 100 kilometers, uh, 60 miles, something like that. And to go learn in the yeshiva of Rav Nassim Adler. So we talked about Rav Nassim Adler last week on his yard site. Now, when you know the dates, once if you're following the shiurim, so last week we talked to Rav Nassim Adler already um, in Tov Kuf Membeis in 1782, Rav Nassim Adler had already left Frankfurt to become the Rav of Boscovitz. And he stayed there for four years till Tov Kuf Memvav. So if we're saying that the Baal Shem, Rabbi Zagarye, went in Tov Kuf Mem Dalid to Frankfurt to learn Rav Nassim Adler's yeshiva, we have to say that Rav Nassim Adler was not there at that point. He came back two years later, but at that point, I guess, his yeshiva still existed. There must have been Talmidim still there. They were following his derech. And uh, the Baal Shem went to learn in that yeshiva. Now, there is a, you know, when you, when you look around and see that the Baal Shem was the Talmud of Rav Nassim Adler, so automatically you have um, places that say that therefore he was a friend of the Chassam Seifer as a, as a Talmud of Rav Nassim Adler, learning in the same yeshiva. But once you know this history of Reb Nassim Adler, like we spoke about last week, you know that that's really impossible. Because we know the Chassam Seifer left with Reb Nassim Adler to Boscovitz and never came back. When Reb Nassim Adler came back in Tav Kuf Memvav, he didn't let the Chassam Seifer come with him. He told him now it was time to leave. So it's not possible that the Baal Shem and the Chassam Seifer actually learned together Reb Nassim Adler's yeshiva. Now that doesn't mean they weren't friends and it doesn't mean they didn't know each other because they shared the same Rebbe, but they, they, according to the dates, it's not really possible that they actually, actually learned together in Frankfurt under Reb Nassim Adler. Now, but he was in this yeshiva, he also, it seems, learned from the Hafla, who was the Rav of Frankfurt at the time. And as we know, the Talmidim Reb Nassim Adler they learned from him, they had a netiyah, they had a, a leaning towards Chachmas HaKabola. And that's how, as we know from last week, Rav Nassim Adler, um, it got him into trouble in, in, in almost all the places he was in, in Frankfurt, in Boscovitz, back in Frankfurt. But his Talmidim followed along as well. And uh, the same thing would be with uh, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, Rabbi Zegarie, also was Mechabel from the, from the yeshiva of Rav Nassim Adler and from Nassim Adler himself. A Natiya towards Kabbalah, as we will see. He also, Reb Nassim Adler, also taught his Talmidim about his Tapkus Bemuat, not needing a lot in Oilam Hazeh, fasts, and all the other types of um, precious from Oilam Hazeh, separating from Oilam Hazeh. In the year Tafkuf Memtes, um, he married his wife, Edelhide, her name was. Um, the daughter of a, a merchant from Frankfurt named Rabbi Isaac Reese. 
And about a year later, he returned to his hometown of Michelstadt. Um, so that would be in Tavkuf Nun. In Tavkuf Nun Aleph, his mother passed away, and um, his father, I guess, was not able to help out so much with supporting um, Rabbi Yitzhak Aryeh himself. I'm not sure how much how much he was involved, but it seems at that point, Rabbi Yitzhak Aryeh needed to find some type of Parnassah for his family. And he started growing pears. Very interesting thing. He had an orchard of pears. And in fact, in... Um, in, in Germany, there's a certain type of pear called a seckel pear. Seckel pear is from Zeckel. They were his orchard of pears. It was a certain type of pear that was very sweet, very good quality. Now, even in America, there is such a pear called a seckel pear. Um, if you do a Google search, it'll tell you that it finds its origins in Philadelphia, I think, in the 1800s. I saw one of the Svarim somewhere. They want to say somehow that this is really the same pear that somehow made it over from um, the Baal Shem to America. I have no way of substantiating that at all. Um, you know, you're Philadelphians, maybe you could, uh, you know, uh, do some research into that. But for sure in Europe, it's well known still this type of pear um, that originally is named after him. It's named after the Baal Shem, Zekel, that was his name. Zekel in, in German. And um, there was, it was well known that these pears had no problem with bugs and, 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 and any type of insects. They were really high-quality pears. He himself, while he was tending to his, uh, to his pear trees, he was uh, constantly learning Balpeh. Who knows, maybe that was the schos, the kedusha, that he had such good quality pears. Um, when he was 30 years old in 1798, he accepted on himself at that point, like his Rebbe Reb Nosson Adler taught, Ki Yistapik Bimuat, he's going to be a Pirish, separate himself from Oilem and only um, sustain himself on the most minimal amount. Most times during the week, all he ate was a little bit of like a, uh, a watery soup, a, hot, a black cup of coffee, and that's about it. And um, starting in this year also, he accepted on himself not to cut his beard. There are some paintings um, of, 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 uh, of the Baal Shem, and you see he has a very, very long, thick um, beard. He had a yeshiva in his parents' home. And it seems that, in, really in his parents' home, it seems upstairs was really the shul of the city of Michelstadt. We'll see later in the shir that the city of Michelstadt, Jewish, it was a small village, and um, Jewish, excuse me, Jewish-wise it was tiny, but there was a shul there, and that's where he made a yeshiva, as we'll see later. Um, when his father was nifter, um, I guess his father was buried in worms, because in the Sefer, um, has karas neshamas of worms, so it's written there in the handwriting of the Baal Shem, that he wrote, Bavor's chus gemilas chasadim, because of the merit of gemilas chasadim, sheyosad beisoy beis hakodesh, that he made his home into a holy home, lekayim divrei chazal, like chazal tell us in Erevin, kol bayish and ishmoin boy divrei taira, that you should have a house that have divrei taira in it. So he's writing that my father actually turned his home not to adjust into a regular holy house, he made it into a shul, he made it into yeshiva. So, in, in this was the first um, segment, the first time he made the yeshiva. As we'll see later, there was a second uh, resurgence of the yeshiva. But he had made the yeshiva in his parents' home 
um, it seems to be this was the shul, so that's where he made the uh, the yeshiva. The city didn't take him as the rav of the city, and the reason was because the kehila. There were some people, especially some of the more wealthy people in the kehila, were not happy with him. And the same way his Rebbe, Rebbe Nosson Adler, suffered from those who didn't understand his Hanhagis, Api Kabbalah, so too the same thing here. People didn't understand the way he acted in accordance to Kabbalah, and there were people who were connected this. As we said last week, you have to remember that this is even though it's a hundred years later, but or more perhaps, but... Um, the, the, the Europe was still reeling from what Shabzai Tzvi had wreaked havoc on Klal Yisrael after Tach Vitat, and, um, and that's why they were very wary of anything Kabbalistic because it smelled of Shabzai Tzvi, who at the end proved to be a Mashiach Sheker and had wreaked havoc on, on Judaism, on families. So anything that was Kabbalistic, people were very, very nervous about. And in fact, he was actually thrown into jail, the Baal Shem. The, he, they, they reported, some people against him reported him to the government that he's doing witchcraft. And that also was not a, even the Gaim weren't uh, excited about that. So they had thrown him to jail for a small amount, a short amount of time because of his Kabbalistic um, Hanhagas. Um, after 20 years of marriage in the year 1800, his wife passed away and left him with uh, five young children. At that time, um, he, he needed more Parnassa, so he went to Mannheim, um, also a, uh, a bigger city in uh, Germany, not far from Michelstadt, a few hours from there, and he went looking for Parnassa there. I'm not sure exactly what he was looking for. There, they had a Rav already. Um, at that time, in the, uh, in, the, in the hospital, there was a woman who had some psychological issues that the doctor was not able, doctors couldn't figure out what to do. And um, the Baal Shem was able to cure her. And uh, this began his career as his name as the Baal Shem, of someone who's able to perform miracles and, 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 and uh, perform wondrous things, and especially in the world of health and refuah, and maybe even more specifically in the world of, um, of psychological issues and chayli uh, hanefesh, emotional issues. Um, that, you know, didn't, uh, they didn't begin in the year 2020. They've been around for a long time. Um, it's just part, part of life, um, uh, you know. So at that time, many people suffered from this as well. And um, I don't know what the cures were at the time, but he was able to, uh, to cure people. Um, and that's how he got the name Baal Shem, although he wasn't looking for the name. He was a very big Tsonua and an Onav. Um, after some time over there in Mannheim, he became engaged to a young lady named Hannah Benzinger. She was 17 years old. He was 42 years old at the time, so there was a very big age discrepancy here. And it seems that she was the daughter of the woman that he had cured. The original woman that he had cured, who the doctors couldn't figure it out, she was the daughter of that woman. Um, the, Jew, the Jews in Mannheim asked him, they wanted him to stay there in, in, in their city, but he decided he wants to go back to Michelstadt, and he went back to Michelstadt, and, uh, and he actually got married in Michelstadt to his second wife, and uh, he was there. Um, he still didn't become the rub of the city, 
there was unofficial Rabbanim of the city, and then there was the uh, government-approved Rav of the city. There are letters that he wrote to the government that he wanted to become approved as the Rav. There's a letter in 1811, I think, another one in 1823. It seems in about 1823 is when he actually became the official Rav. I don't know, I saw somewhere that maybe he was unofficial before that earlier, so I'm not 100% sure, but somewhere in that neighborhood he became the actual Rav of... Um, of, of Michelstadt. In 1825 he had a dream that his house burned down and nothing was left. And the, the dream was recurring. Um, it happened a few times and he got very nervous from it. He wasn't sure what to do. He was thinking maybe he should sell his house. He didn't want to sell his house. Between him and his parents, they had been there for like 90 years. There was a shul upstairs that, that the Michelstadt Jews used. He didn't want to just sell his house. So he bought insurance. He bought insurance on the house. Um, but not long after that, um, in uh, September um, uh, uh, of that year, he, um, he um, in the middle of the night, the uh, fire broke out. He, he, he was able to save himself and his family, but uh, everything else was totally destroyed. There were tons of svarim there because he had his yeshiva there. Um, there were many, many manuscripts. His own kisveyad, his own writings were all lost. Um, in this, in this, uh, in this uh, fire, the fire spread around twenty houses in the neighborhood. All burnt down from this fire. Um, the news of this fire uh, reached many places, and people sent money from all different types of communities. Money was sent from Frankfurt. A lot of money was sent, um, and between that money and the insurance money, he was able to acquire another home, buy more svarim, and reestablish his yeshiva. And open it up a second time here. Um, like we said, the first time was much earlier. The first time was in Michelstadt. Um, so like we said, originally the yeshiva was in his, his parents' house. And that seems to have been the shul. Now, the, the Jewish community of Michelstadt was tiny. It was like 20 families. The whole city was not a big city, but it was like 20 families. And they didn't feel that they could support a yeshiva. There were about 70 Bacharim at times who were there. So you can imagine, like, there's 20 families in the city and 70 Bacharim um, come and uh, converge on the city and the city's supposed to take care of them. Even the rich people were very upset and they were very upset. They called it the Mabel of Talmidim Zarim. There was a Mabel, it was a flood of all these Talmidim who came to learn there. And they complained to the government. And the government actually said, he's not allowed to accept any Yeladim Zarim, any non-local children, unless he himself takes upon himself that he's going to support them and take care of them. And that's what Taka happened. He did, there were, except for some rich Bachram who had their own means. He took care of them. So even though he himself subsisted on very little food, like we said before, he barely ate anything, but the B'nai HaYeshiva, they had unbelievable, in his home, they had unbelievable meals, full nourishing meals. Where did he get the money from? As we'll see, people who needed a Yeshua would send money would send money, as we'll see a little bit in, in a few minutes. And the money, he didn't, took any, didn't take anything for himself, or maybe very, very little, for the, the minimal that he needed. The, he gave most of it towards the support of the yeshiva. That's how he supported his yeshiva. And not only that, some bigger cities like Frankfurt and Mannheim would also send donations at times. They would send out Mishalachim as well throughout Germany to help support the yeshiva. 
He was a person who was constantly doing chesed and staka for anyone who needed. And even when he didn't have anything, he still went out of his way to do gemilas chasadim. And even people who were um, his, his, his opponents, he helped them out. One of his big opponents, um, who was a wealthy person, lost a lot of his money and he needed, and he had no parnasa. So even though he was his opponent, but it didn't bother the Baal Shem, he supported the family. His house was open to guests, very similar. If you remember, Rav Adler's house was also open to guests. Um, his children grew up um, amongst many um, orphan children who were also taken in to the home. At that time, reform was making its, uh, its emergence in Germany, and he fought against it. And he would, there's letters that he wrote to other kehilois who asked him what to do. He wrote... In regards to rabbis who are looking for leniencies, don't forget, Reformed Judaism started, they were Orthodox, what we call Orthodox, they were from people. First thing they did is they took out Yukumporkan from Davening, little changes. And he said, for those people, those Rabbonim, Bikolom Altechad Kivoidi. Just like Yaakov Avinu said, Bikolom Altechad Kivoidi in their congregation, don't uh, put my honor there, I have no part of them. So he was, he was Leichem against the, uh, the reform. His name is a Baal Shem, is a Baal Moifis, spread throughout, for sure, Germany, throughout the world, the, the Europe as well. Gidoile Oilam, like the Chassam Soifer, like the Chidushe Harim, would send Jews to him to, if they needed a Yeshua. So we do know, that it seems that we know the Chassam Soifer, um, maybe not, didn't know him from Frankfurt, from learning with him, but he was well aware of who he was. Um, he would write in his notebook the name of any person who sent him a letter, what exactly their problem was, um, where they're from, and what Eitzah he gave them. Um, again, a lot of it was destroyed, a lot of it was lost. They found two, um, two notebooks um, that, uh, that, that uh, survived. In those two notebooks, there's about 1,500 names of men and women who lived in almost a hundred different places who had asked him for Eitzahs and Yeshuas. So that's just two of his notebooks from maybe 10 or 12 years. I don't remember exactly the years um, of what they covered, but that's 1,500 people just in those years. can imagine how many people reached out to him for Yeshua. It wasn't only from Europe, there's from Holland, there's from France, and even uh, a few from the United States who sent him letters. Um, they needed a Yeshua. Many Rabbanim from... Um, different communities in Germany also, their names are in here that they turn to him for Eitzahs or for Yeshuas. Um, most of his most common Eitzah was as follows. And that was what he would call Limud Shir. He would learn a Shir for the person who needed the Yeshua. Now I don't know, I looked, I couldn't find how long each shear was. Does it mean he learned an hour for them? Did he learned five minutes for them? Is there no, uh, you know, a shear just means, the actual word shear means, or shear means an amount. He learns an amount for them. So, but he would learn a shear for them, um, and that's usually what his Eitzah was. So it's interesting because as much as like, you know, you know, he's saying he's a Baal Shem and he has, he, and, he, and, he's, and he's giving Eitzahs for Yeshua's, but they're all grounded in the fact that he's learning for them. He's learning for these people. And um, so that was the, that's the most common of things. And therefore, if you think about how many people he was learning for, um, there were a lot of his own private shiurim, so to speak, going on for all these people. Most of the people turned in for medical advice um, and medical problems, but there were others as well. 
Um, most shiurim, it's written down in the book, were for individuals. Sometimes it was for a husband and a wife, a couple, sometimes a family. Sometimes it was even a, a community, but most of the time it was for individuals. Numerous women who were expecting would write to him, and it says he would start learning in the seventh month of their pregnancy until their birth. So, you know, go on for a few months. Um... It was very common that there would be postpartum depression. Women would be depressed, mara shchira after uh, after birth, and uh, people would be concerned. And he would learn for them um, um, that they should have a refua. Um There's other shilas in there. There's a um, there's a there's a there's a uh, a request about a, ch- a young man who uh, started shaking and he has headaches. Um, there were times, there are times there he writes, besides the fact that he's going to learn a shear, he says you have to go to a doctor. This woman needs a doctor. Uh, she had hearing issues or sight issues. Sometimes he would say go to the doctor. Um, if the person asked a halacha question as well, he wouldn't answer. He would say, for that you have to go to your rav. Um, if you have a rav, ask the rav. It says, uh, uh, one place it says, Ubinyan ha-mikvah, like in regards to your question about the mikvah, that you got to ask your rav. There was no, um, there was no uh, specific amount of how much he had to pay him for these things. Um, however, uh, you know, he, he didn't give a specific amount. He would usually send a receipt once he got the money. Um, if he learned for an extended period of time, I think like once or twice a year, the money would be sent in. And like we said, most of the money went towards the supporting of his yeshiva. Um, Many times, besides for the sheer of learning, he would tell them to do something as well. Sometimes he would say, give tzedakah. Other times he would say to do what's called a pidjain nefesh, redeeming of a nefesh, which is also um, tzedakah. Um, sometimes he would say, after davin. Sometimes he would say, to say, tehillim perekei, um, for depression, or postpartum depression, he would say, to say, tehillim perekhaf, um, in one instance, he said after or before every tefillah, I think, of the day, not just once a day, before every tefillah, to say kapitol chaf. Perak tzadi alef, chalisha sadas, people who are feeling bad, are feeling down a little bit, not depression, but people who are a little, um, you know, need a, a burst of energy. Um, sometimes he would say to check the mezuzahs. Um, sometimes he would say, give challah and oil to poor people on Erev Shabbos. Sometimes he would say to donate wax for candles to the Beis HaKnesses. So they, they, they varied the different schoolers, so to speak, that he would give, all in addition to the shear that he would learn for the person. Um, as he got older, he was, he, was, he was sick very often, and at times he was in bed um, for extended periods of times. Um, his son writes that he never complained, and in fact, even though he was in terrible pain and he was in bed for, for, for extended periods, but he tried to hide it from his family. Um, in Tough Reish Hay, which is 1845, he writes somewhere, As he was getting weaker, as we said, he said, I wasn't able to answer because I am uh, not so healthy. And another place he writes in the same year, if not for zikna, for old age, v'toshash kaychin, that I'm weak, 
Domain, I would say write a special letter just to the leaders, the Manhigim of, of Frankfurt. Um, but he says, like Alashan Agamara, ain't done in Efsher Efsher. You can't learn out Efsher from Efsher, which means to say, if I would have had the strength, but I don't have the strength, so there's nothing that I could do. Um, now, even though there was times that he couldn't give shear to the public because he wasn't well, however, the personal shiurim that he was learning for people, that he was constantly doing. Um, even in the beginning of Tafresh Zayin of, of 1847, there's a written in one of his, um, again, the, uh, already in 1845, he was writing how weak he was. So in Tafresh Zayin, two years later, he writes, there was a... Um, he writes in the notebook that there was a uh, kehila, 26 people um, from one kehila came to him, they should learn a shear for them, and there were other individuals in those years as well, but it seems that by getting towards the end of Tafresh Zion, he was weakening a lot, and the last um, date that's in that uh, notebook is Aleph Devarim Tafresh Zion, uh, Sunday of Parshas Devarim, which was in July or something like that of that year, in 1847. Um, when he was uh, once very weak, remember his wife as much is twenty some year. Uh, she was he was, was twenty five years younger than him. Um, so he, he was already seventy eight, seventy nine. So his wife was younger. She was in her fifties, um, and she was very nervous. He's going to pass away. What's going to be? And he told her, and he was mechazeker, and he said that um, you don't have to worry. I'm going to take care of you even after I'm I'm, I'm nifter. Um, anytime you need anything, just come to my kever and um, I will uh, put in a good word and take care of you. Erev Rosh Hashanah of Tav Reish Ches, which would be of 1847. So his children wanted to come to him, Erev Rosh Hashanah, to, uh, again, it was still Tav Reish Zion, Rosh Hashanah would be Tav Reish Ches. His children wanted to get a bracha from him, but he was so weak that he couldn't, uh, he, Pasha couldn't speak. Um, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, he wanted to hear the shaifer, so I saw somewhere that it says a story that the Baltikea came and uh, no sound was able to come out of the shaifer. And um, so the Baal Shem said, bring me a, a emotion to bring him a shmata or something. And he covered his face. And when he covered his face, so then the Baltikea was able to blow. I'm not sure exactly what, uh, what the significance of that is, but that's how they bring down the story. Sometimes he chapped, I guess, that his face was being meinea, the shaifer from being blown. And after the Tkiyas, um that day is when he gave over his, uh, he won instructions for his own funeral. And one of the things he said was that in those, in earlier days, the, the uh, coffin or the mitah, the bed, the beer, was always brought in Jewish uh, tradition, was always carried by people all the way to the cemetery. It wasn't put on a wagon. The reform, they were starting now to use wagons. Um, and not carry the mita. So he said, he again, like we said, he fought against the reform-making changes, and he said that one thing is that do not use a wagon, um, you have to carry carry me all the way to the Beis HaKvaris. And he also said, please, that in the shul, after I pass away, do not make any changes in the Beis HaKnesses. Like we know, that's the reform. They made changes in the shuls. Um, and they, they, moved, uh, they moved the bima and, they, and other types of things that they did in the Tzura of the Beis HaKnesses. And he asked, please, that's, that's what he doesn't want that to happen in his shul. Um, so he was nifter... And, um, and Dalid Tishrei, which is today, 
Dalit Tishrei, he was Nifter, he was 79 years old. Um, he told them that he doesn't want to be buried till a few days later, till like three days later. I wasn't sure exactly what the reason for this is, but we do find in the in the Tshuva Svarim about the Hever Kedisha, they weren't always, you know, it wasn't uh, so clear if a person was dead or un- unconscious, and there were, and and the government used to put things in place also, and, and you find Tshuva and some cipher about this, and other places where the government did let, didn't let them bury people for a few days and do different types of things to them to make sure they're really dead, um, you know that's why the Chaver Kaddish used to put a feather by the person's uh, nostrils to see if he's if he's actually dead or he's just unconscious. So maybe that's why um, he said it. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but he wasn't buried until um, Vav Tishrei. Um, in the Jewish and Goyish newspapers, um, German newspapers, they had articles about the Levaya, it was a big Levaya, because he was well known amongst the Jews, as we said, but he was even well known amongst the Goyim as well, because he was a big Balchesed to the Goyim, he did things for them as well. And, um, and in fact, um, the, the, he had priests and, 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 and uh, others who came to the Levaya. I saw somewhere that actually two priests actually spoke at the Levaya and were maspid him, besides the big Rabbanim who were there. So he was well, well known and well liked by everyone. And therefore, that's why it was in all of the, uh, all the newspapers, Jewish and non-Jewish newspapers, about his death and about um, the, the Levaya. According to uh, tradition, we said before he told his wife that anytime she needs anything, she should come to his kever. On that sign that was is by the kever that said before his whole yichus, we talked about in the beginning, it says over there that according to tradition, he said before he was nifter, that anyone who comes to his kever and needs a Yeshua, he will... Um, he will do something for them. And that is why his kever has become, for many years, a magnet for people, especially with health issues, and more especially for people who have psychological or emotional issues, because like we said, that was a very big thing um, that he was able to cure. So his his, uh, his kever was a big magnet for Ashkenaz Jewry and many Jews all over to um, to come, and not only for Jews, for Goyim as well. I was speaking to my shver this morning, Rav Kreisworth, the Rashiva of Teres Chaim in Yerushalayim. He was in Yerushalayim now, Baruch Hashem. So he asked me who I'm giving on today. I said, the Baal Shem Michelstadt. So he told me that uh, they say that um, in the First World War in 1914, and I, brought, I saw this brought down as well, and it's told us that um, the, the um, inhabitants of Michelstadt who had been drafted to the army, Jews and non-Jews, all went to his kever to Davin before they went to the front. And according to tradition, everybody came back alive, nobody was killed, it was a, a Pella. So even the Goyim still continued to know about it. And um, it's well known, even in Michelstadt, it was well known amongst anyone that there's the Baal Shem who lives there. Um, and even now it's well known because it's a magnet, as we know, for it's one of the highlights um, of, uh, of this small German town is the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. Like we said, there's not a lot of Tyra left over from him. Most of his manuscripts were burnt a, a few years ago. Mechon Yerushalayim got a hold of some of the manuscripts that were left over and like these notebooks as well. And they put out um, a sefer from him. 
Um, I, I have some copies of it. Even the notes, his own Kisveyad, it's a lot of very, like, Maramakaimas. It's not a lot of actual Torah itself, especially the ones that he wrote for himself. Um, it's very, uh, it's, you know, he writes, I in here, look here, Akasha, and then, you know, a few more Maramakaimas. So there's not a lot of Torah from the Baal Shem but Lemaisa, he left us over a, uh, a, a legacy of someone who, a Talmud of Rav Nassim Adler, who, uh, who gave his life to help, to help other people, and uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of people were helped by him, and Be'ez Hashem today, you know, Dalit Tishrei, um, usually on, on his yard site, there's, there's many people who are there, I don't know what's there now, I don't know what's like in Europe with travel, but... Um, um, the uh, it's uh, it's it's a place where people go, and now especially we need a refuah in our times. The entire world needs a refuah from the situation we're in. So Bez Hashem, we should invoke the schus of Rabbi Zakaria Ben Rematisio Zechrein Levracha Lebar Shem of Michlstadt. We should all be zayche to refuahs and Yeshuas. We should be zayche to Agmar Chesim and a good Ben Shiar. Call to everyone.